Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. As always, we are joined by passionate and wonderful teachers throughout Georgia who work diligently to promote a love of music in the next generation, and today's guest is no exception. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Monique Arard to the show. Hello, Monique. Hello. Can we just get started with an introduction? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I have been living in Atlanta for almost six years. It'll be six years in June. And prior to that, I moved from Las Vegas, where I got my DMA in piano performance. I teach in East Atlanta and Brookhaven. Uh, I have a private studio called Music with Monique, where I teach kids and adults, kids starting kindergarten and up through retirees. I teach piano and music theory. And I'm also adjunct faculty at Spelman College where I teach music theory and I'm a collaborative pianist. Great. Why are you a musician and teacher? Was there someone who was particularly influential in guiding you to this path? So I became a teacher unexpectedly. I always thought I would just minor in music and I wasn't a classical pianist. I I mean, I took piano, but I had examples of very serious colleagues who went on to Juilliard and my teacher was very serious and I had other interests. And so in my head, being a musician meant you only did music. And I ended up majoring in music regardless. I had a scholarship from Miami University to pursue music, so I did do that. And then I was teaching ever since I was 16, but I ended up having a career in nonprofit and I was teaching on the side and practicing during my lunch break. And I kind of was ignoring all the signs that this is really what I wanted to do. And so then I got my DMA and became an independent studio teacher full-time in 2018. So that's really interesting. It sounds like you were running this full-time job career on the side while you were preparing for a re-entry into music. How did you manage the stress load of that and balancing everything? It was very, very stressful. (laughs) Even during my master's, I worked a 50-hour master's in music. I worked in a nonprofit job unrelated to music that was 50 hours a week. It was very stressful. I had to be very efficient about how I use my time. And even when I finished my DMA, I had five part-time jobs, mostly in music, but one was a half-time full nonprofit executive job. And it was, it was very difficult, but I slowly shed those jobs and was able to just run my studio independently. Yeah, that's interesting to me because in your introduction, you talked about having a private studio and teaching um, at a college and being a collaborative pianist. So I'm already thinking this person likes to wear multiple hats simultaneously. And it's like (laughs) a bit of a pattern in your life, would you say? Yeah, I would say so. Whether or not uh, I'm consciously (laughs) aware of it, it keeps happening. Yeah. Yeah. So would you say that the level of stress and pressure on your life right now is very similar to what you experienced earlier in that transition period or has it kind of uh, simmered down? It's actually a bit on the high end similarly because the collaborative piano was an add-on as is the adjunct faculty was a very like last minute appointment. So I was really excited for the opportunity 
but then there was a COVID scare and so they needed a collaborative pianist too and then they needed another one and so I really wanted to help out the department and since I'm there I feel part of the community but yes it's been uh I'm excited for the semester to end in a month with everything <laughs> and then my students have a recital on the 15th you know so it is a lot it is a lot Sure, sure. I feel like as teachers, we're always trying to uh, help our students find a balance and to manage their stress. Do you have any advice that you give your students just yes. from personal experience? Yes. Um, and I have adult learners for whom piano is their stress relief until they have expectations on themselves to accomplish something and then it becomes stressful. And so I always encourage my students specifically the adults for whom this is just for fun, this is just a source of stress relief, that I'll just meet them where they're at. I understand that they have busy careers and this is their refuge where this is just their place for relaxation. And I have adults who have told me that their doctors have reported that their blood pressure went down after taking piano. So that's really exciting to me. Um, but I would say taking time for yourself, taking care of yourself and I just read this book called Atomic Habits about uh, just keeping like a two minute rule. Like if you just want to set a goal for yourself, just set a two minute rule that you're just get to the piano and practice for two minutes. And you can mark that as an accomplishment. And I think just really lowering our expectations for ourselves is helpful in reducing stress mm. and prioritizing and just saying, being okay with saying no to other things. Mm sometimes easier said than done. Yeah, I like this idea of just setting that small goal, that two minute goal for yourself, because a lot of times the hurdle for me and for students to getting to a piano is just feeling like there's so much to do that you don't even know where to start. And so if it's just two minutes, we can all do that and we can overcome that hurdle. Yes, definitely. And it's just because I think we were like, okay, I need to practice half an hour and I don't have time or I'm too tired to do this piece and or but two minutes, you there's no excuse and you can check it off and feel good about it. You yeah. can give yourself permission to feel good about just doing two minutes. Fantastic. And usually once you sit down, it'll be longer. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so thank you for letting me chase that rabbit trail. What was your family's relationship with music? So my parents are both immigrants and they came to the US as refugees. My mom is from Ukraine and my dad is from Egypt. And they both really wanted to study music and didn't have the opportunity in their countries. Like, for example, in communism, you had to bribe the teacher. So even if you got in and my mom's family wasn't in a position to do so. So when they came to the U.S., I was born in the United States. They really made it a priority to provide that opportunity, regardless of their financial means. And my grandmother, when I was three and a half, bought a baby grand for me at an estate sale for $500, like an antique baby grand. And they had, my parents asked me if I wanted to learn to play. And I said, yes. And so I started piano at three and a half. Yeah, so my parents really, really supported having a classical music education. They also, we used to listen to classical music and just look at art books for fun and check out recordings. So they were very supportive. They made it a priority, even if it was outside of their financial means, but they never put pressure on me to do 
to be a professional musician. And they even would tell my teacher, you know, she's not a professional, this is just for fun. And so it's funny that I became a professional. And I think a lot of people got burned out really early, but I think because that pressure wasn't there, mm-hmm. it's still like a burning passion of mine to play and to teach. Yeah, I wonder if, and I'm trying to think about how to ask this because I know at least, so I'm Chinese and a lot of times in the Chinese community, you know, they have their students take music lessons, but they don't want their child to go into music. Mm -hmm. Um, They would much rather these more lucrative jobs or more stable jobs. Was, Was that the mindset of your parents at all? Like, were they opposed to you going into music? No, they were not opposed. They just didn't want to put any type of pressure on me. And I have to applaud my parents for being remarkably supportive in me pursuing what I wanted to do. Both my brother and I, my brother is also like an artist in his own right in um, media art, and he plays piano and all of that. Um, But they, when I wanted to get my DMA, and I, I was working in San Francisco and it meant quitting my job and financially it made sense to move home and share the car with my mom so as not to incur student loans. They were like, go for it, we'll help you. So they always said, don't worry about money. It'll come when you're doing what you like to be doing. So I'm very, very grateful. Yeah, it's, I know a lot of people aren't brought up with that. Wow, that's fantastic. That That's a beautiful uh, family environment to grow yes. up. Yeah, I'm very lucky. <laughs> yeah. What are some challenges you have encountered as a musician? I would say the biggest one has been imposter syndrome, that I just really struggled with my own identity as a musician. You know, I had a master's in music and didn't see myself as a musician. I finished my DMA and was applying to nonprofit jobs because I still didn't see myself as a musician. And then finally, it just people, I just clicked, it just clicked that no, I am a musician and I'm accomplished and I'm getting recognition. So a lot of doubt in in my own abilities as a musician and also in financial security and doubting myself because almost every musician I've encountered is very smart. We're usually in honors classes and we could have been in more lucrative fields And so it's difficult to see that and be like, what's wrong with me? Like, you know, I have five college degrees. Why am I the poorest person I know? And and there were nights where I stayed up and thought about other fields. And then I was like, no, I have a doctorate in music. Like, this is what I, I wanted to do. This is what I meant to do. So I would say those two have been the biggest challenge. And I was told when I was looking at DMAs right after my master's, by advisors, like uh, academic advisors in, in music, that like, you should only pursue music if that's the only thing you can do. And if you're smart and you can do other things, you should do them because it's very difficult to make a career in music. But I did try everything else. And this is the one thing that I really love to do. So I'm very grateful that it's working out. Yeah, I wonder with the imposter syndrome, where do you think that doubt comes from in spite of all of your accomplishments and that supportive family that you grew up in? Like, how does that creep in? I think in comparing yourself to others, Mm. first and foremost, in having a fixed idea of what a musician is, because in my mind, a pianist was a concert pianist and 
I grew up surrounded by people who were practicing six, eight hours. Like my teacher, I was her first student in the US. She was from the Moscow Children's Conservatory and her daughters were practicing six, eight hours. Now they have international careers that are very accomplished in their fields. And her other students were doing that. And so I saw that as being a pianist and I had, I was playing sports and I was social and I was in youth group. And so I was like, well, I'm not a pianist because this is what a pianist looks like. Yeah. And that stuck with me like until my mid thirties. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I am reflecting on myself and I, I think I feel a lot of those same feelings because I, I, I was very fortunate to grow up in a very supportive environment as well. But a lot of that comes from comparing yourself with others. What advice do you have for parents who have children taking lessons? How can they encourage and help them to succeed? What role do parents play in a child's musical development? In my studio teaching, I have found an absolute direct correlation with parental involvement and the child's success, regardless of the child's ability, talent, the amount they're practicing. If the parent is involved, child students are accelerating. If the parent is not involved and just relies on the child to practice and follow assignments, it doesn't happen to the same quality. So I would say be present. You don't have to specifically attend lessons, but it helps. You should go over your assignments with your children. You don't need to know how to play to do that. You can have a very basic knowledge. And I'm sure any teacher out there would say that they would gladly spend a few minutes of the lesson time helping get a parent acquainted if they don't have a musical background so that you can help your child like accomplish their assignments, you can understand the assignments, you can have a shared goal. Because I really see it being a team of the teacher, the parents or guardians, and the student sharing a goal and sharing a mission. And we should all be on the same page about what we want to accomplish. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that word of encouragement for our parents. Do you have any musical or pedagogical projects that you're currently working on? So this summer, I'm launching my first ever themed summer series uh, of lessons. It's called uh, Summer at the Movies. And so it'll be a fun time where we can work on music scores. So for both kids and adults, I'm doing it in East Atlanta and online. And with less pressure to do any, you know, uh, festival or competition pieces. So just fun arrangements of pieces for movies we like. And I'm also offering a camp for late elementary and middle school students on film scores and analyzing, you know, a clip and like, what is the music? How is the music helping to describe what's going on in the movie? And then we're going to do our own little composition project. And at the end of the summer, we're going to collect video recordings of the performances. So instead of doing a live performance because people are traveling all summer, they can submit their recording and then we'll have a watch party of the recital, including the compositions of the students for the music in the movies camp. So that's my pedagogical project. And then my personal projects is I'm hoping to get back into my doctoral research related on 18th century historical improvisation. And so I'm going to be attending a conference online, but it's based out of Switzerland. 
related to my research and also just practicing those um, historical manuals myself. Lastly, I, my COVID project was a Lisp B minor sonata and it got derailed many times. So I'd like to come back to that too. Oh, wow. You have your plate full. Yeah, I'm excited. So, I wanna, yeah, I want to pick up on this idea of teaching kids how to compose. What's your process in teaching a kid who has never written anything how to write their own piece? It's very experimental. Um, I've done some projects where, for example, we did a Valentine's Day composition project, which uh, was a resource from a Facebook that some teacher posted. And it was just, you know, in C major, eight measures, they gave the rhythm. So you had a framework and then uh, you could base it off that. So I've done fixed little frameworks where it's limited. The possibilities are a little limited. And if you want to break the rules, fine. And then lyrics. So some students are more lyricists than composers, but that's great. But then I've also done open projects. So I think with this movie one, I'll leave it open and see what the kids come up with. And they don't have to be able to write it down. They can like play it by ear and then I can help them to transcribe it. Fabulous. Fun. Yeah. Tell me about your time in GMTA and MTNA. How did you hear about the organization and what has being part of this organization meant to you? So I first heard about MTNA in my undergrad when I took a piano pedagogy course and that kind of planted the seed. And then it wasn't really until my DMA that I took a course in um, teaching music in higher education. The very first class I took as part of it and the instructor who was the chair of the music department really enforced, you should get involved with whatever organization is relevant in your field. Like this is the best way to network this is the best way to really uh, meet your peers and uh, colleagues and stay on the most professional level you can be. So with that, I started the UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas Collegiate Chapter of MTNA, which was part of the Nevada Music Teachers Association. And I went to the MTNA conference in 2014 in Chicago, I think. So as the UNLV ambassador, uh, which was really cool and really overwhelming with the amount of information that was out there and resources, and it was really eye-opening. Since then, I was part of the Nevada Music Teachers Association, and I had mentors there who really helped me. And one of them taught a course for getting nationally certified. It was a two-year project. So that was really important to me. And I'm very grateful for that process and accreditation because I had looked into piano pedagogy programs for my DMA, but it made sense to go to Las Vegas. They didn't offer pedagogy programs. So I really feel that getting nationally certified made me go through the process of receiving that education and really thinking about my studio policies and starting to think about the business aspects of that because you don't really get that in a DMA. Then when I moved to Georgia, I reached out to GMTA and I was immediately welcomed. And I've since had a lot of mentors, specifically uh, Dr. Carol Payne, who's in the Atlanta Music Teachers Association. And uh, through her, I've had opportunities to teach at Clayton State University in their preparatory school and to become involved with the Georgia Musicale group and get some performance experience. And that actually helped me with this Spellman job. So I've taught um, aspiring teachers And the first thing I do is like, you should get every accreditation you can, and you should 
become active in your local uh, MTNA chapter because it's the best networking experience that you can have. So in summary, it seems like that professor's advice about joining the association and helping you network has come true, has been proven true. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because we're so isolated as independent studio teachers that this is the best way you can meet other people. And a lot of them, for example, in the Atlanta Music Teachers Association are starting to retire. And so then they're offering me work or, or their studios are full. And so if you're a new teacher, it's a great way to get students or get volunteer opportunities for competitions and get involved and get to know people and also learn how things work. So yes, I definitely highly recommend getting involved. Yeah, you talked about getting nationally certified. Now, a lot of our listeners will be nationally certified, but a lot of our listeners are just members and have not pursued that certification. Can you break that down a little for us? What did it involve? Sure, so it involves working on the business aspect and working on the teaching aspect. So for the business aspect, really thinking about creating a studio policy. What are the components of your studio policies? What are the systems in place that you have for new students, transfer students? What are the ethical considerations you should have with those? Then also for the teaching aspect, it involves recording your lessons, analyzing your lessons, getting feedback on, receiving feedback on how you teach, but also analyzing yourself. Because I think most of us, unless we went through that process, have never recorded our own teaching and thought about, well, what can we do to improve it? I also observed teachers in Las Vegas and learned a lot in that process. And also about how they run their studios because we have so many different options. And for me, I really have to test what works for me. I can't just use, even if it's been proven successful, I have to make sure it's authentic to myself and works for me. And also there's a theory component. So if you haven't had a theory, uh, this will really help you and you, you can get assistance from a tutor to help you with that portion. But specifically for aspiring teachers who don't have a music degree, this can still make up for a lot, like going through that process will really help you. How long did that process take you? It took me two years, but it was worth it. Wow, great. It made me a lot more confident in my teaching yeah. and my professionalism. Yeah, yeah, I can see that because it's so comprehensive. Yes. What do you see should be the future and role of classical music in society in the 21st century and the role of all genres of music? Do you see any trends in the field of music or music education? And how do we prepare ourselves for these changes? Okay, so I'll start with the first part. For my entire life, I've heard that classical music is dying. And I think that it's not really a matter of people's taste, but a matter of exposure. I see myself as a teacher, not only as a teacher, but as an ambassador and curator of sharing classical music and the world of Western art music with my students. So for example, in January, I organized an outing and had 24 students had signed up to go to the symphony to see a piano concerto. And a lot of people had never been to the symphony and wouldn't have gone, but because it was organized, they went and they liked it. And the kids' students wanted to come back. And it, it's really just lowering the barrier of entry to entry for classical music so that it's not intimidating. It's not super fancy. You can just enjoy it. 
In San Francisco, I was part of this movement called Classical Revolution. And they were, it was like open mic classical nights in a bar. And mm. it was the thing to be at on Monday nights and people were drinking and talking. It was not necessarily a concert. It was very informal, but people were exposed to classical music and really liked the pieces. And so I've also taught uh, low cost music literacy courses and cafes during happy hours, just so it's not scary. Anyone can learn to read music. Anyone can learn to appreciate music. So I'm just exposing people to it. And I think that we can use trends such as like TikTok and all these latest social media trends to share classical music. That's a project in the future for me. But just getting people to listen to it because usually they love it. They just haven't heard it yet. So in terms of trends for education, I think we'll definitely this digital platform, you know, before COVID I had offered online lessons, basically no one was interested or felt that it would work. And as of March, 2020 until June of 2021, that was exclusively what I was doing and it was working very well. And now I have students who live in my neighborhood who prefer online lessons and it fits their schedule better and they don't have to deal with Atlanta traffic. So I think the online platforms of, you know, lessons are definitely here to stay. I think that incorporating more and more technology is here to stay. And the other trend I'm seeing is teaching music as a language. And that was based on my research. And now I'm seeing it more and more just understanding music cognition and that we are learning music in terms of patterns rather than individual notes. So I think that that's going to be a bigger trend in the future too, in pedagogy. Oh, that's fascinating. So I want to back up to the earlier point about lowering barriers. I do agree in that I see that there are a lot of unspoken rules um, in attending a musical concert. Like last night, we just had a faculty recital here at Valdosta State, and I was sitting in the audience, and I could tell that a lot of the audience were composed of university students who might have only been there because they were required to attend because they were (laughs) taking some kind of general ed class where, you know, one of their assignments was to attend. And I could tell that they weren't quite sure, like, wait, do we clap now or do we clap now? Wait, why are we clapping now? But we didn't clap earlier, you see. And and then and then the whole wondering occasionally I, I will get a text from a friend like, is this outfit okay? for a concert, for a recital, or there's a public masterclass that I'm attending. Is it okay if I wear this? No Mm -hmm. one knows. Like, where do we go to find this information? That's a good question. I try to educate my students beforehand. Like when we went to the symphony, we met up beforehand and talked a little about the etiquette and then at intermission. Yeah, I think it's our job as teachers to kind of help our students get acclimated When I taught group class piano at UNLV during my assistantship, I I made a concert requirement just to go through the process of seeing it and observing it. I just supplement, I decided this is important to them. And then I had them write about the experience. Like, what did you observe? How was the pianist sitting? Was it, you know, the same or different than you expected and all that kind of stuff. Oh, that's fabulous. Now, I wanted to touch on that second point that you were talking about learning uh, music as a language. I had not considered this, but it does seem like it is a trend now that you have mentioned it, because there is a greater emphasis on teaching music as rote. Is that part of that trend? 
Yes, because um, this is going back to the way music was taught in the world's first conservatories. And we have very little manuscripts because it was an oral tradition. And that got changed kind of in the 18th century with the Germanic tradition where they there was a rise of middle class who wanted to be amateur musicians, whereas before it was students who were in the conservatories who were apprentices and all of that got passed down orally. So that changed. And then we became more glued to the written score with the advent of recording. And we lost that performer improviser kind of role that pianists had previously had. Like, yes, you played a piece of music, but then you improvised the cadenza or you improvised the variations. And now students are terrified of doing that because we're just looking at the score like dogma. And I think that's recording because we, we now see a recording and that's the perfect recording or we want to emulate that. But prior to recordings, it was a performance and it was live and it was different every time. And so I think that we're trying to get back there because as classical musicians, we're among the few forms of art where it's kind of normal to not be creating new stuff, but to be just recreating old stuff. Mm-hmm. and other forms of art don't really do that so since this seems to be your area of specialization are there resources that you can point us to for us to learn oh, absolutely. About this? I would say first and foremost Robert Yerdigan's book G-J-E-R-D-I-N music in the gallant style was a huge resource and it's written in a way that people with very little musical experience can still get the idea of it. And he talks about the world's first conservatories and compares anecdotally with theater and how there were these like Mm -hmm. just stock patterns and music composition was taught in these stock patterns because these court musicians had to be so prolific to keep up with the demands. How can you, you know, when we think about how much these composers were their output they were prolific because they had these patterns that they quickly assembled. Whereas we're thinking note by note, that's the best resource. And he got a new book. It's called Child Composers in the Old Conservatories. Great. I will have to check that out. Thank you. Yeah, I highly recommend it. Yeah. This is our very last question. Do you have any advice for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their careers and enter professional life? I would say first and foremost, you have to believe in yourself because the doubt is inevitable. You will constantly be dealing with doubt, especially if you go out on your own. You should feel very confident in your skills. So for me, that was getting a DMA and learning certain pieces that I was like, okay, this validates that I'm an accomplished pianist. So you should feel confident before you put yourself out there. And that means practicing and that means putting in the hours and uh, be being ready to make those sacrifices. I also think that it's important to get accreditations beyond degrees if you can, or instead of degrees, if that's your path. So whatever kind of accreditation and teaching you can get, I, for example, in addition to the NCTM certification, have an elementary specialist certification from the Royal Conservatory of Music. And I'm hoping as my students progress to get intermediate and advanced levels, but I even having a DMA got so much out of those courses and just, it brought a fresh perspective to my teaching. So continuing to participate in professional development opportunities is really important. Putting yourself out there as a performer is really important. I've gotten students from performing. And 
Uh, I would also say try to take a business course if it's being offered to you or seek one out because the business aspect is a completely other uh, animal that we have to deal with as independent teachers and it can be tough and, and you can question yourself and it takes time to really build respect in this field and earn your right and you have to figure out what pricing plans work for you, what policies work for you, what's your cancellation policy, all of that kind of stuff and really enforce it because there's a lot of learning that goes along with that. If you're too nice or trust people, unfortunately, sometimes you can get taken advantage of. So really holding to things and policies and also you need to be a good bookkeeper too. So I think that confidence in yourself as a musician, but also as a business owner is really important. And to get that, take whatever education or experience opportunities you can to help you along that path. Wow. Thank you for that practical list of advice. Sure. (laughs) Thank you so much also for your time and for speaking with me and uh, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. I really enjoyed this conversation and really appreciate you allowing me to chase down some rabbit trails and going to uh, uh, interesting places with me in this conversation. I wish you the best as you finish up this semester and I wish you happy teaching and happy students.